Welcome to the Untold Hour. It's ya boy, Bowser, back with another not-so-solo episode. I have a guest this week, so this entire episode won't just be me ranting about the Ghostbusters sequel. (laughs) Yikes, but thank you to everyone that hung in there through that episode. We had fun, you know, we had fun. Got some good uh, emotions out. It was cathartic, I think, for everyone involved. And because of that episode, I thought I would do something different this week. I'm actually going to launch a new segment, which is crazy to do without my co-host, without Jess being here. So she'll have to learn about this retroactively. We're going to launch a new segment that is not just Bowser talking about a horror movie he saw, but specifically Bowser talking about a horror movie he saw and liked. So what do we call this segment? I don't know. Let me give you a little run of show before we get back into what to call the Bowser liked it segment. Maybe we just call it that. Bowser liked it. Later on in the show, though, stick around because we're going to have a really interesting guest. We're going to be talking to Dan from Toy Galaxy. I talk about this channel a lot because it's a YouTube channel I obsess over. If you've never watched a video on Toy Galaxy, you're missing out, unless you're not a toy hound like myself. But they have such informative retrospectives on why a toy was created, why it was successful, why it failed, who owned it back then, who owns the IP now. They're just these deep dive videos on toys. And I think, well, we're going to find out, I think Dan is uh, of my generation so a lot of times the cho- the toys they choose to focus on are, are are from my what do you call it like just nostalgia center. They are from the 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 cortex in the middle of my nostalgia synapses. Those are not the right terms. Um, and I want to talk to him specifically about spooky toys. So we're still keeping it spooky. We're just branching out a little bit. We're going to talk to uh, I I would assume. He's a toy historian might be the best way to describe him. He's a collector uh, in his own right. He has an interesting video about having sold his collection and how he rebuilt it. I'm a big fan of the channel. Dan Larson from Toy Galaxy. We're going to talk about the spooky toy boom in the 80s. The, The toys that had goo, the toys that had slime, monsters. You know, I'm talking Boglins. I'm talking My Pet Monster. I'm talking Creepy Crawlers. I'm talking the Ghostbusters action figures. Why do these toys exist and why uh, garbage pail kids? Why did they only exist in the 80s? I want to try to get into the etymology of the spooky toy boom with Dan and also just pick his brain as a fan in regards to those to those different toy lines that I obsessed over. Okay, but before all of that, we're going to have a new segment. What are we calling it? Bowser liked it. Um, Bowser's, Bowser's good boy, sweet, sweet boy picks of goodness. Um, gosh, what do you call something when it's actually a positive take? Um, when I normally have negative takes, you know, I don't know, maybe as I talk about this film, 
it will reveal itself. The title will reveal itself to me. So here's what I want to talk about. I'm gearing up to make an independent horror comedy. I've talked about it a bunch. I did a Kickstarter to raise half a million dollars toward Onyx the Fortuitous and the Talisman of Souls. Now, as any good producer should, I not that this is new, but I've done a lot of research in watching films that land in a similar budget range to try to decide what decisions were made and why, where people chose to spend money, where people chose not to spend money. Uh, why can two films that both cost the same amount look so radically different? And I, if I'm judging a movie, I try to be conscious of the budgetary restraints because I will be operating within budgetary restraints. I have operated within budgetary restraints. And I know there are certain decisions made that are budgetary. But here's the thing I don't forgive. I don't forgive the decisions being made that are free. There are so many decisions that can be made at any point, creatively, even technically, over the course of creating a film that are free, that are of no extra charge. For instance, no one signed up for, I mean, I guess we just call this Bowser's Film School, Jesus. Uh, the Bowser's Film School that no one willingly enrolled in. I watched a movie recently. I will not say its name because I, 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 I disliked it to a point where there's no use of me talking about it pointedly. Um, it didn't have anything in there for me to learn from. It didn't have anything that I felt like uh, the, the oh, this is mean, but where the efforts were even admirable. I really felt like they squandered what they had. They squandered the talent they had. They squandered the time they had. They squandered the concept. They, squand they squandered the creative. Squandering the creative with Andrew Bowser. Um, but Somebody was murdered in the movie, and the person that was murdered... God, how do I explain this without getting into specifics? Somebody died, and they had no thematic symbolism in the main character's life. It would be like me killing uh, the, 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 my postman. And, and in a movie where the postman doesn't represent anything, the postman doesn't represent mundanity, routine, the postman doesn't represent repetition, and my character is, is, is struggling to break out of rep, rep, repetitive thinking and the mundanity of life, and so even the postman symbolizes something that I want to be unshackled from, so my character becoming unbridled and killing the postman actually says something thematically. No, no. Somebody dies in this movie, and uh, it holds no purpose, and it has no symbolic meaning. It represents nothing. Now, any other character in that movie could be killed, or the character that was killed could have been slightly recontextualized and rewritten to mean something thematically to the person that killed that person. That's free, dudes! That's free. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's free. So I can judge that decision because that's free. You, If the character really resented their workplace, hated their boss, but didn't have the balls to kill their boss, but hated the boss's underling, or hell, even hated the kind of sycophantic new hire that's sucking up, that's already climbing the ladder faster than my character's climbing the ladder, my the themes I'm operating off of 
would say somebody in that sphere should die at my hands. Symbolically, within the realm of this movie, that would say, I want that thing to die. That corporate structure, that boss, everything they represent, everything, everybody that sucks up to the boss. There's meaning in, in my character killing that person. That shit is free. Tethering your action to themes is free, free, free. Anybody can do it. When you're writing, that's when you do it. That's when you pull those little strings down and you tether the action of your character down to the theme that's anchoring the movie. Every movie has themes. Every movie is operating off of themes, okay? I guarantee you, your favorite movie right now, think of it, what are the themes? If you've never thought of themes, movies thematically, think of your favorite movie and just name three themes. Oh, God, well, I don't know. I guess it could be, I think of loss. I think of family. And I think of reinvention. Yep, those could be three themes for a movie. Think of your favorite movie. Close your eyes and go, shh. And just think of the themes. They're there. I guarantee you, your favorite movie has themes. And it's integral to me, to the success of a movie, not box office wise, I mean creatively, that the characters' actions are tethered to themes, that what these characters do to each other and what happens to them is representative of the underlying themes of the piece. I mean, that to me is is what cinema is. You know, cinema isn't simply real life. Cinema is real life through a fictionalized lens. We are inventing it. We are creating it, okay? So... It's not as simple to say, well, that character just killed the postman. Okay, why? Because it's random, dude. Life is random. Okay, is your movie about life being random? Is your movie about natural-born killers? Is it about how any of us can die at any point? Is the movie The Devil's Rejects? Is it, a, is it about evil crashing into normalcy? You know? Or is it trash humpers? What are we doing? But if your movie isn't something that is based on a shotgun blast, structurally or, or thematically, everything should have meaning. You should be able to apply a meaning, even if it's subtle, okay? Dear God, what was my fucking point? The point is, I judge a movie based on what it didn't do that it could have done for free. So making that death symbolic and representative of something deeper thematically is free it's free so your movie loses points if it doesn't do what it could have done that cost you nothing that's what i judge a movie on on top of that if you've got you know uh not enough money for special effects there are filmmakers that know how to shoot to hide the holes hide the holes hide the holes an amateur filmmaker won't be able to see their own holes because they're not practiced enough and they don't judge themselves enough and judge their own work enough to where they won't hide the holes. They'll put the holes in the middle of the frame. Ah, man, that person really wasn't right for that role. Well, should you maybe hide them in the edit a little bit? Should you maybe focus on reaction shots and not their performance? Uh, could you even maybe play them as voiceover or at least off-screen dialogue? Nah, I'm going to put them right in the center and just have them talk a bunch. But you didn't cast them correctly? They weren't the right person for the role? Nah, but I'll just put them front and center. Got it. Got it. Okay, okay. My point is, I've turned this, the segment into 
hating on something instead of talking about something that I enjoyed. Here is my point. The movie, The Vigil, horror film, okay? Directed and written by Keith Thomas. Made all of the right free decisions when they needed to make them. You watch that movie. Is it a perfect movie? I mean, I what, what's a perfect movie? I'm listening to a Hitchcock book right now, and every fucking movie he made, he was like, fucking trash, fucking trash. He judged all of his movies. And the truth is, you go back and watch some Hitchcock movies, and some of his judgment on them is accurate. You know? He talks about some where he was too distracted by the technical exercise of the piece. He, he, he talks about some movies where he was only concerned about the fact that his lead actress was starting to date somebody, and he was jealous. It's... Every work of art is flawed. It's not about perfection. I have minor issues with the vigil that I think they could have changed quite easily enough. But man, those small issues do not, to me, overshadow how many correct decisions were made, especially when stewarding something low budget. This movie, to me, created... An environment that most people would say, well, you can't create an environment. You're just going to have a, a person in a house and, a, and what, a camera with uh, some good lenses? Yeah, dude. Yeah. You Really, all you need is an enigmatic lead actor and some good lenses. I'm saying good lenses in the sense of great cinematography. But I'm telling you, dude, your lens choice when framing an enigmatic, charismatic lead performance you're almost golden if your structure is sound, if your story structure is sound. The Vigil has such sound story structure. It is so shored up foundationally. I, at no point, was was bored or even could think about being bored, even though this is what the plot concerns. A man providing overnight watch to a deceased member of his former Orthodox Jewish community finds himself opposite a malevolent entity and writer-director Keith Thomas's electrifying feature debut. That doesn't really quite explain it. Okay, basically, um, in the Orthodox Jewish faith, there's a, the, a, 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 there's a role called the Shomer, and they are asked to come and, and pray over the recently deceased and kind of help guide the deceased spirit to the other side and be with that body until the body is, is picked up by uh, the city, by whoever would come and take the body away. This is what's it's it's a setup that I could just see being squandered and 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 um made cheap and they just refused to make it cheap. They refused to squander it and they refused to make it cheap. And I'm telling you right now, obviously it starts with the writer and the structure, but Dave Davis, the lead actor in this movie, from word go, you can hear him off camera talking to the director saying, "Could I do something different with this?" And the director allows it. Now, I'm not saying it wasn't the director's decision. I, it could have been. But I really feel like Dave Davis brought something really original and really unique to this character. I felt it in his performance that he had made the decision and had the conversation. You know, I'm going to play this a little this way. Keith, is that all right? Can we try a take where I'm maybe more anxious than you might assume? He plays this grounded anxiety that manifests in his body physically in almost imperceptible nervous tics that that take up such wonderful space in a horror film. Because in horror movies, 
So often, these performers are not allowed to be unique, nuanced individuals, layered humans. But Dave Davis, like, right away was like, what if I made this guy real? What if I made him believable? What if he had tics? What if he spoke a certain way, moved his body a certain way, held his arms a certain way? And it fucking pops, dude. I see, I'm not joking. Somebody in my private Facebook group last week, on my Onyx private Facebook group, asked if my opinion on a film has ever changed after the first time I saw it. And the answer is no. Uh, maybe there's an example, but I'm telling you, as a kid, I hated movies. I mean, I remember seeing Lost World, Jurassic Park 2, and I walked out of there like, what the fuck? The fuck? I remember being angry. I remember everybody going to see Three Ninjas, like for a kid's birthday party. And I walked out of there being like, why the fuck did you make me sit through that shit? It was shit. So my opinion on a movie has never changed. I knew the second this movie started, it was going to be good. The first scene was... I hate to pump it up if all of you go and watch it and you're like, the visual is just okay. That's fine. You can think that. The truth is, it's so much better structured and executed than most indie horror. It should be getting the kind of praise that, I won't name names, but that a lot of indie horror gets that honestly does nothing but regurgitate tropes, kind of exploit our genre's tropes, and um, use the genre as a uh, welcome mat into other areas of filmmaking and other genres. The Vigil is actually the real sauce. This is the real sauce. Are there tropes? Sure. But they don't execute the tropes as if they think the tropes are enough. They don't give you a jump scare and then look to camera like, we got you, right? Well, that'll hold you over for another 20 while absolutely nothing fucking else happens. No, the jump scares are there almost out, you know, out of obligation, but never did they detract from moving this character forward, moving the plot forward. And I'm telling you, dudes... You know, the whole thing takes place in a house. How many horror films have you been told, wow, it's really good, it's just like a person in a house or two people in a house, and they're actually trash. This works. It completely works. All right, anyway, outside of Dave Davis absolutely ripping it and playing this character with depth and nuance, uh, they talk like real people. What? Wow. Who'd have thought... What? You could just write characters that talk like humans? And that would be okay? They have to sell so much exposition, and they do because they humanize the language, okay? They don't make them sound like data dumps. I'm going to give you an example, okay? I'm not going to... It's going to be me paraphrasing it. And I hope this isn't a spoiler. I, I wouldn't consider this a spoiler... Because after the first scene, you, you kind of get an understanding of what this guy is going through um, and that he's you know feeling a little unstable mentally and emotionally. Uh, I don't think it's uh, the, the plot I just read said it's his former Orthodox community. It is about a man who has left the Orthodox Jewish faith. OK, so we begin with him having left this faith, but it being difficult to have left the Orthodox community because it was his entire life. But there is a moment. One of the hardest fucking things to sell in any movie is, is a phone call, dude. How many times people have to be on a phone call? I fucking hate phone calls in movies. There's no, not a single phone. We don't even explain why cell phones don't exist in the Onyx movie. They just don't. Why? Because fuck them. They don't exist. I don't care. There are multiple phone calls in this movie. They never feel stale. They never feel like existing only for exposition because Dave sells the emotion and Keith, whether it was his dialogue or whether or not the actor was allowed to kind of 
make it more organic. Someone uh, wrote the dialogue to sound like human beings. I won't bring up the fucking five other horror movies I watched this week, but I happened to watch one right before watching The Vigil that made me so goddamn angry because people just didn't talk like people. Wouldn't that be the easiest thing? One of the only times I've been outright offended was when somebody, a producer who never backed any of my films and never financed anything for me, uh, but has gone on to make many, many movies, uh, said that my dialogue sucked. I can take every amount of criticism. I fucking dare you to, to prove to anyone that my dialogue sucks. Fucking dare you, dude. Because even in a comedy, I write like human beings write. I think people aren't used to reading that kind of dialogue on the page. The second you act it, they're like, oh, fuck, got it. Yeah, no, that is how people talk. Oh, okay, sure, sure, sure. I've had people tell me to take out the number of ums and yeahs in my scripts or the number of uh, dot, dot, dots, the number of uh, people repeating themselves when they restart a sentence. But guess what? Guess what? That's what people do when they repeat a sentence, when they restart themselves. Okay, anyway, the point is, it's not about me. I had just watched a really bad horror film that made every fucking wrong decision, spent money where they shouldn't have spent it, spent time on scenes they shouldn't have spent time on, had characters interacting that had no thematic representation toward each other, had action occurring that meant nothing on the deeper symbolic level. And then I watched The Vigil and it was just like, yeah, it's just this easy. I'm not saying it was easy to make the film, but this movie is so fucking simple. They just let people be human. They let their themes be tethered to the action, everything fits like a puzzle, and yet it's still not entirely predictable. Uh, I just can't say enough good things about it. Um, okay, so this was the example I was going to give. At some point, he's got to call um, a doctor that he's been talking to in a group, kind of a, kind of a self-help group to leave the Orthodox community, and he's been talking with a doctor. And he tells the doctor... I'm in this house. I agreed to be a showmer for the night. I needed the money. One of my former um, peers in the Orthodox community hired me to, to do it. I have been a showmer before. Um, but, you know, I'm starting to see things. And I'm starting to hear things. And this is the line that I was so fucking stoked that he sold. He said, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't think I need to go back to the hospital. And just that, dude, just that was enough. You know how, do you know how sweaty that exposition could sound? Even if it came from the doctor, even if the doctor had said to that character, well, Yaakov, do you, do you think you need to go back to the hospital? No, I don't think so. All of a sudden that feels so forced. And yet coming from Yaakov, the main character, and coming from Dave with that little stutter and almost swallowing it so it didn't sound like exposition. You know, it didn't sound like, Hey, I'm hearing things. I'm even seeing things. I really don't want to go back to the hospital. I didn't like it there. I'm glad to... No, just fucking... I'm seeing things. You know, I'm hearing things. I, I don't think I need to go back to the hospital, but... And then they moved on. The doctor cut him off. The, the conversation continued. Oh! Things won't always be organic. It's your job to make them sound as organic as possible so that the audience digests it, so that the audience swallows it. They did that throughout this movie. I mean, could I tell it was exposition? Yeah, but did it go over smoothly? Did I digest it not as exposition? Yeah, I digested it as an emotional moment. If you can put your exposition in emotion, 
then it goes down. That's the spoonful of sugar. People always forget. And that's why exposition in most films is so clunky because it doesn't come from emotion. You have to put your characters in situations where providing exposition is the necessary emotional step to take. Do you know what I mean? Think about the worst kind of exposition in movies. And it's always that clunky, I can't believe he's back. He was dead for 13 years. Somebody must have risen him from the grave. And that means they'll have ultimate power over hell and earth if he reaches the inner circle. God damn it, dude. Thank you for that data dump, my guy. Why are expositional characters always the people at the laptop, the most removed from humanity, the hackers, the fucking middle ditches in, you know, Godzilla versus Dickamabob or whatever? You've got to give your exposition to characters that have an emotional reason to provide that exposition. And yes, the Vigil does that. Okay, let me wrap it up because we're about to get ready for our guest. But the Vigil also covers the holes. You can feel the budgetary restraints, but when they get to, when they're, when they're pushing it, they bring it back. And the only problems that I have with the movie, I can't say because of spoilers, but might be where they didn't have the right amount of money to sell a certain visual and um and they didn't pull back but it was also like at that point they kind of needed to not pull back and i think they were like you know what we're gonna have to let some seams be seen and fuck it and so i understand um it couldn't be you know a, a movie that was purely built on restraint but so much of the movie is built on restraint god damn dude they sell some stuff that i was like i can't believe you actually sold that there uh, uh, uh again on the expositional front i can't say because this one's definitely a spoiler the point is, if you want to watch an indie horror film that knows how to spend its money, that knows how to hide its seams, and that knows how to showcase what quality they do have control over, their lead performance, their cinematography, then watch The Vigil. I found it to be to resonate so much more than movies that operate on similar wavelengths like Babadook or um, the, uh, the, uh, the, the Relic Um even that movie about the guys going to the woods, the the ritual. Um, the vigil to me, even though it's bare bones and it's small, the bones are actually uh, more trustworthy bones than some of those films with, with even a little bit more money. Uh, and I believe this director is going on to remake Firestarter for Blumhouse. So uh, that's tight. I mean, I think this guy's got the sauce. And I'm really hoping this lead actor, Dave Davis, is somehow involved in his Firestarter remake. Watch the vigil. Okay, that has been our brand new segment. What is it called? Bowser's Film School? Uh, maybe. Or Bowser's Sweet Boy that liked good, good things. All right. Uh, <laughs> Next up, I'll be joined by Dan Larson from Toy Galaxy. Thank you, Dan. Thank you so much for joining me. Absolutely. Thank you very much for inviting me on. Uh, first of all, I mean, I'm just a fan of, of your content. I'm a fan of your channel. So it's always cool when I get to have someone that I'm a fan of on the show. <laughs> um, and they look so familiar and feel so familiar to me. But we've never met. But I've never watched met. so many no. of your videos. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. And obviously, I'm familiar with some of your work as well. Uh, I didn't, oh, awesome. uh, I'll be honest. I didn't know that uh, Onyx and Andrew Bowser were the same person. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, good. So I was, yeah, I was familiar with the Onyx. And I was, uh, you know, I was, I was like, oh, my gosh, it's that guy. Oh, OK. Yeah, That's no, great. I know his work. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That could have also made you not want to come on the podcast. So you never uh, know. <laughs> you know, I, I guess that's possible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
if you thought he was a real guy and you were going to be met by him on the other <laughs> side of this Zoom call. Um, well, so I specifically wanted to talk to you about uh, spooky toys. I don't know if you've got a, a, a better name for them, but one of the episodes of, of your show that I watched on Toy Galaxy, you specifically talked about this boom of like goo and monster toys in the 80s. And I had never thought of it as like something that happened in the 80s and never again. But I think in, and I might have been the My Pet Monster episode of your show, you specifically make a joke about how, and then toys were never this fun again type of thing. And it, so maybe big picture, why were the 80s such a boom? Let's just say for cool toys in general and well, not even spooky. Why were they such a, a killer decade for toys? So in particular, that era is generally referred to as the gross out era of toys and pop culture in general. I mean, it's all over the place. Yeah. Uh, I, I know you're a big horror guy, so you know what was going on with uh, the the horror genre at the time is different from right. everything else, from what pre preceded it and from where it's gone since then. The 80s were just a different time. And I think big, big, big picture, there's just a lot of things different uh, going on there with you know respect to the kinds of technology, whether it's the technology related to filmmaking or to the actual production of toys and the way that all of that stuff is intersecting with how it's being promoted, how it's being marketed to kids. Mm -hmm. You know, you had cartoons before the 80s. You've had cartoons after the 80s, but never right. did you have this confl confluence of the cartoons and the toys and the comics and everything having this marketing synergy to put that in front of kids on Saturday mornings, after school, before school, and to just put all of that together. As yeah, far as, true. like, you know, when you start to boil it down to why did this sort of gross out era thing happen, you know, it's like kids have always been gross. <laughs> Kids have <laughs> kids have always liked gross stuff, you know? Right. So in terms of, again, bringing it back to that marketing, it's like everybody's trying something. And, you know, we can get into the, to the you know, more of how these things all sort of interact. But yeah. um, it, it was a unique thing that caught on and spread because of everything that was happening across media at the time, at the same time. And I've, I've got notes yeah. ready, so. <laughs> oh, perfect. Well, yeah, I mean, one of my first questions is, like, was there a property that sparked that specifically? Was there something that you can point to that says this is what or, or because it was happening in all factions, is it hard to trace? Or was there a, a gross out property that everyone was, you know, so, like I, as, from a film perspective, I can look at Gremlins, Gremlins and I can say, well, that's where <laughs> that's where Critters came from. That's where Ghoulies came yeah, from. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, is that what it is for? For the toys, where did it? So for the toys specifically, you can go back to uh, Mattel really has a lot of responsibility for this. Mattel basically invented slime as a toy <laughs> okay. in 1976. Now, there were creepy, gross, weird toys before that. Like uh, we, we did an episode on creepy crawlers. Yeah. Uh, again, that's Mattel. And Mattel basically built the Thing Maker, which is just it's essentially like a it was like a vacuum press, but it also had like molds that you could cook. So you, you pour the gel and stuff into the molds and you can cook it. And what they found was they thought the vacuum thing, the vacuum shape thing was going to be the thing but everybody was really into the cooking the things and that turns into creepy crawlers and easy bake oven all that kind of stuff but creepy crawlers is basically you're making little rubber bugs you know like you, yeah you, you 
squeeze the goo gel into the things. You cook it oh. under the hot light bulb, and then you pull out spiders and you know beetles and you know bugs and all that kinds of stuff. Yeah. Uh, so that's a big deal. Uh, Mattel really pushes the slime until about eighty. It dies off, and then yeah, once nineteen eighty hits, you have all this kind of stuff popping up. I think nineteen eighty two, nineteen eighty four. Tough to say which was the scarier year for kids at cinema. Mm-hmm. 1982. 1982, you've got Secret of Nim, E.T., mm-hmm. Dark Crystal. I, that E.T. alien was like dead in that movie, right? <laughs> yeah. And I even have uh, friends now that have children that that they see all sorts of Marvel movies. They see things with big monsters. And yet they showed them E.T. last year. And the kids were like, well, I can't sleep now. Yeah. That was that. <laughs> That was scary, but Thanos isn't. No, you know, no. and there's yeah. something there's something about that storytelling, and you know whether you can give it to Steven Spielberg or you know uh, Jim Henson or whatever. Uh, yeah. You know, I, the, the other year I would put in competition with that is '84 because '84 you have Gremlins, Ghostbusters, mm-hmm. Never Ending Story, and Temple of Doom. Yeah, uh, you know all movies that are really focused around this sort of realism. You're not talking down to kids. You're treating them as you know uh, adults, mature viewers of the content and and the storytelling. And uh, you know you had actually, I think it was on your last episode uh, of uh, this podcast that you talked about um, not not wanting to to protect kids to 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 sort of right. keep them safe from feeling those those feelings about fear and scariness yeah. but in that protected setting and i think that's what those movies were doing and so when you totally. pull all that over into the toy world yeah kids already like gross things bugs rocks dirt slime getting muddy you know <laughs> and yeah. so what do you want to sell to a kid they want scary stuff they want gooey stuff they want oozy stuff and it just, mm-hmm. it all comes together, and now you've got a successful toy. And you know what's so funny is I was a ki- I was a real scaredy kid, and um, but yet was always attracted to this stuff. And I remember, I but I wasn't the kid that, like, uh, that had an easy time with it. I, I remember when Garbage Pail Kids were circulating, I was kind of, like, freaked out to look at them. I didn't know if I'd see something I shouldn't or, or how far <laughs> was too far. And, and even with the Ghostbusters toys... Um, and I've told this story on the podcast, so I, I'll make it brief, but my sister and I were both allowed to go to Toys R Us and get a toy, one toy each, and I was like, I'm getting something Ghostbusters, I'm getting something Ghostbusters, and we get there, and there's this mummy toy on the Ghostbusters animate, you know, animated show, and I was like, that's it, I want that, I want that mummy, and I got it, and my sister got a, Cabbage Patch had done like a, a line of uh, dogs, yeah, and when I yeah. say this to people, they're like pound puppies, and I'm like, yeah. no, 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 not no. pound puppies. Yeah, you're yeah. one. You're one of the only people that may know yeah. that I'm not crazy. They were like Cabbage Patch dog or Cabbage Patch puppies, and my sister got that. And when we got home, I all of a sudden was terrified of that mummy and took it back to the Toys R Us. And I at first I tried to pawn it off on one of my friends. I called them. I was like, you, do you want this mummy toy? Because I I swore its eyes were glowing red by oh itself. Oh my goodness. <laughs> And so I took it back, and then I got a, car, a Cabbage Patch puppy instead. And yet, I did still become a monster kid. I mean, I loved those movies, and I loved the the gross-out stuff, but it, it like took time for even me to kind of get the confidence uh, to dive in. 
Yeah, well, so there's always this sort of, and and it's part of the the allure of it. There's this taboo right. kind of mystery around it. There's always some story about some kid who died looking at the thing, or, totally. or or reading the thing, or whatever. Oh, I heard somebody choked on the thing and died, and you yeah. know, the, you know, death is such a it's a weird concept when you're an adult, but when you're a kid, you're just like, I don't. Even, it's just this weird abstract thing. You feel invincible. Yeah. You feel invulnerable, and you know, you know that these these toys that there's like a different energy that you know you're drawing on when you're when you're interacting with them uh so yeah i totally get that i totally get the the uh, the attraction combined with the revulsion and it's that sort of back and forth energy you just can't lock onto it you know absolutely i loved garbage pail kids but i was i was definitely more into the ones that I thought were neat. Like I loved, uh, you know, like the zombies, you know, the, yeah. the, the bad, the cool kids, you know, graffiti PD, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it got into the stuff that was too gross, you know, like they start to do too much stuff with snot. They start to do too much stuff <laughs> yeah. with vomit. You know, it's like, all right, you're starting to lose me. <laughs> yeah. I'm not so much into the bodily functions. <laughs> it's so funny. I, I recently did a Kickstarter for an Onyx movie. Yes, congratulations. And yeah, I saw Thank that. you. Thank you. <laughs> and one of the rewards is a, is a man it's pretty much a mad ball uh, uh, yep. and i was working with someone to design it and they sent me the first pass and i was like eh, needs more goo yeah gotta get more goo <laughs> and then they eventually kind of broke his skull open and there's brains and there's goo and you know lacerations on his face and it was i i realized people often ask if you didn't do like the film and video stuff what would you do and I really never had an answer until this month. I think I would try to be a toy designer. Yeah. Because I don't know if I've had as much fun uh, in a long time as I have making this toy for this reward. And then in the in the Onyx movie, he collects – this is like, oh, my gosh. This Again, this is something maybe only you would care about. <laughs> he, he collects um, uh, toys from the 80s because he kind of experienced something – uh, traumatic in the 80s, a familial tragedy that's kind of like, and I realize I'm mapping that to my own life probably, but so Onyx in many ways is kind of stuck in the 80s and he collects these toys. They're called battle cats, but they're based on battle beasts. Okay, yep. And I, for the life of me, couldn't remember the name of those toys and I had so many <laughs> and I I searched and searched, you know, small toy, miniature, animal, uh, no idea that they were linked to the Transformers originally and uh, and had no idea that they what I find so interesting about your channel is that you really trace where those properties are now, how many different hands they've passed through as far as ownership and representation and how they've gone further away from what they were originally. Anyway, I digress. The point is, I made Onyx a toy collector in the movie just so I could make Battle Cats toys. Yeah. <laughs> So that's a long, that's a long that is a long route to take to get to your own toy line. <laughs> that is that is a very long route to take. And I only realized it. it. Yeah, I did. I was like, oh, I'm finally a toy maker. Yeah. Uh, so I was listening recently to a book about the 80s uh, comedy scene and uh, specifically the careers of Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd and Steve Martin and Eddie Murphy. And the Ghostbusters chapters were obviously the most interesting to me. But I don't think I understood how big the animated show was. I loved it, but there's a lot of the book dedicated to the the live action performers being resentful of the animated show and being bothered that it got so big. And and even, you know, Harold Ramis being like, I don't have blonde hair and all this yeah, stuff. Yeah. Was that show and were those toys really big? I mean, were it's- they... 
you know, it, for whatever reason, me personally, the toys didn't connect with me. Uh, yeah. But that's a huge, huge, huge toy line to the point where, I mean, uh, Hasbro uh, owns the Ghostbusters now. Uh, yeah. They just re-released. Uh, it's not the exact molds as those vintage figures, but uh, for a lot of them, it's very, very, very similar. So they just released that. And obviously that was meant to tie in with the movie that still hasn't come out yet. Yeah. Um, but that there is still an audience for those vintage figures and that vintage style of those figures speaks to how big it was back then. Yeah. Uh, it was a really big deal. And, and yeah, I think the phenomenon of Ghostbusters was bigger after the two movies than it was. And it was huge during the movies, yeah. of course. But for the generation that really held on to it and made it what it was, multi-generational at this point, uh, yeah. yeah, it was the cartoon that drove it. Well, and, you know, I apologize if I'm just picking your brain on, like, I stuff that I'd, I want to talk, I'd want to talk yeah. about over coffee. But <laughs> I, I recently met up with a friend of mine who is a toy designer and, uh, and, and his buddy who's a graphic designer, and they had each done some things for the Onyx Kickstarter – and but we had never really met up in person and we got coffee in Burbank the other day and and I realized oh this is my like my dad likes to meet up with with his guy friends and talk cars and even like models they like making <laughs> model planes and I sat there and talked with these two buddies of mine and we didn't not talk about Ghostbusters and Gremlins pretty much for an yeah, hour and a yeah. half I told my wife when I got back I was like I think I'm finally that older guy, but yep. my thing is the eighties. It's not classic rock. And my dad like restored an old spitfire. And that's what he talks about. For me, it was talking about the eighties with these guys. But so that brings me, what you just said brings me to, and this might be a little deep divey for wanting to have a bigger picture conversation, but I often think about the films that I love from that era that aren't represented as toys. Like why aren't, why isn't there a giant gremlins toy line? And then I thought, is it because there wasn't an animated series to push that? Because it kind of needed all. But I've always wondered why were the Gremlins, and you know, and there are plushies of Gizmo, but not to the level, I guess, of like the no. Garfield plushie that it was no. so iconic. And, and I, you know, I have those very vivid memories of walking into the shop, and you know, GI Joe's here, Masters of the Universe is here, uh, yeah. Star Wars is still here. And then what's there for Gremlins? There was, yeah, there's like a bendy, like an eight-inch bendy stripe. Yeah. You know, yeah. A, a gizmo that's uh, sort of in scale with that, maybe too big, but it's got like, you know, shoulders and a neck, you know, three points of articulation. It's kind right. of uh, hollow. Uh, and then, yeah, there was some, uh, you know, plush dolls and that type of stuff. And then there was nothing else. And even back then, I remember thinking like, where, where's all the toys? But yeah. I think you answered the question with your question. It's that... There was no there was no cartoon, you know, there was no other yeah. media support for it. And that was really, really essential at the time. A movie by itself wasn't enough. You needed to have all the, these other elements to it. Yeah. Well, so what are some other big hitters out of this gross out era in your mind that uh, that were big and maybe didn't have as much staying power as like the Ghostbusters as a franchise? But um, what are some others that to you are the big boys of that era? Uh, you know, the the ones that always come to mind for me personally with the gross out era is the slime pit for, you know, Masters of the Universe. That oh, to yeah. me is sort of like a key, key piece because it's anything that the key feature is pouring slime on your toys. Uh, yeah. It's like I, you can't get more gross out era for me. Mad Balls is there, but it's still yeah. it's, kinda, it's it's a nerf ball. You know, you throw it around, you squeeze it, whatever. It's got gross snot sculpted into it and whatever. Uh, but that's definitely one for me. Uh, you know, Boglins tend to come up a lot. Uh, oh gosh! Almost yeah. more like a almost like a mad ball that you can use as a puppet, right? <laughs> Basically, yeah. Um, and uh, the the one that really, really, really sticks out to me, 
that I'm always like, I'll bet nobody remembers this except me. Um, they were called bloodsuckers. And it was a Gosh. it was a pen. It was a pen that kind of looked like a bat. And so the front half of it was like the sculpted bat part. And the rear end of it, like the butt end of the bug or the bat or whatever, like think of a mosquito, was a yeah. clear cylinder full of fake blood. And the oh idea was gosh. that the idea that was that when you held it upright, right? So the pen tip is pointing upwards or angled or whatever, and you yeah. held it up against something, that blood started to fill up in the in that chamber. So it looked like it was sucking blood. And then when you oh turned it, gosh. you know, correct way, you take off the tip and you start writing, the blood is draining down and it looks like you're writing in red ink, you know, blood ink. Uh, yeah. And, 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 uh, I've got to look this up because I don't know if I've heard of this. Yeah, Bloodsuckers. It's by a company called Marshawn. Uh, they're from 1984. Uh, you'll find a uh, commercial if you search uh, YouTube. There's a 15 second spot for them. But that's the one for me that when I oh, when I wow. think about walking through the toy aisle in 1984, that's the one that always stuck out to me as like even a kid going, "Did we cross a line here?" Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Sis, I got to I got to tell you, I just looked this up and they do not look familiar to me, which I am so sad to say it's because crazy I thought crazy because they sold millions of these things. But wow. it's not one of those things that anybody ever thinks about or, or remembers, you know? Yeah. It's crazy. I mean, they look like something I would have obsessed over. Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And and Boglins were, were, were big for me. Um, and, uh, and specifically any – I mean, I loved the Ninja Turtles, but – when there was a character that had some kind of ooze element or slime el element, I mean, even to this day, and I don't even think he comes with any literal slime, but Mutagen Man yep. is like my favorite Ninja Turtles toy. Um, and I, I, but again, I just grew up in it. And then it wasn't until I was watching your videos where I realized, like, oh, that gross out era was like my jam. Yeah, <laughs> that is that is what I was uh, attracted to. And and I, I think I said this on the pot, and maybe I even said this last week. I don't know, or it might have been a live stream I did, but I've just been rebuying some of these things yeah, because yeah, yeah. <laughs> as a kid, I think it was also in one of your videos where you talked about KB toys and how you had to kind of, if you were in the mall and you could buy a toy, you could say yes to what was at KB or roll the dice yeah. and stop at Toys R Us <laughs> on the way home. And that's, I remember that sensation of like, do I buy what's here at KB yeah. or do I check Toys R Us on the way home? But they could have nothing. Yeah. Um, and uh, anyway, I don't even remember what I was fucking talking about. But <laughs> well, let me throw another one out here. We actually did a video yeah. on this one, so you may have seen us cover it. Uh, Ideal also in 1984. That's that's the sweet spot for this whole era. Uh, Ideal did a, a toy line called Manglors, and Manglors were made out of this kind of. It was it was uh, initially it was like an insulation type of gel foam kind of stuff, um, almost like Nerf, but a bit more pliable, a bit more uh, like adhesive kind of properties. Um, and, and it was a, you know, a noise reduction, a vibration reduction foam that they were like, Hey, can we make toys out of this? Let's, let's give it a shot. And so Manglors, there's only like four wow. figures, Manglord, Manglosaurus, uh, I can't remember the names of it, Manglizard. Um, and there was like a little mountain kind of playset thing that you put Manglor in. Uh, and the gimmick yeah. was supposed to be that this, this material would self heal. So you could 
pull off the limbs. You could in- interchange the take this head off, put it on that body, and they'd they'd heal themselves. They'd stick together. Uh, yeah. And they, it, it didn't last long. It went out of business because it literally did not do that. Of course, <laughs> it didn't I'm work. Looking at images of these toys torn into pieces. Yeah, I mean they show yeah. it. In the commer- they show it in the commercials. First thing the kid does is like ah, takes his arm off. And so what do you do when you're a kid? You're like, I need that thing. You buy that thing. Of course. In the, you don't even get home. You're in the car. You rip the arm off, and you're like, I just broke my toy. It's I can't wow. put it back together. Uh, so wow, this packaging one. is the is art killer, is, uh, though. Yeah, yeah. I can, yeah. I can't remember if that's uh, Ken Kelly. I think it might be Ken Kelly who's done a lot of wow. uh, 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 great art. He did like Micronauts art and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, one of the other uh, spooky toys that I wouldn't have remembered the name of, but I was obsessed with them. That that was in uh, on your channel was the Supernaturals. Uh, that's where I was um, going to go next. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where the what I love is is these trends that were being chased and that hologram trend. And I guess <sighs> battle beasts even had a little of that too. They had that heat sensitive, uh, hologram, but we, yeah, we tell us about supernaturals because uh, I do think that's a, yeah. it's a less known toy line, but man, I had, I had a few of those and I obsessed over those holograms. Yeah. Loved so, you the know, way they this looked. is a, this is a great time period for toys where they were really just trying to find a gimmick that, Forget the toy, just a gimmick that separated them from somebody else. You know, it it wasn't always about a different story because that's hard to come up with a new story that nobody's ever done with a toy. But if you could throw a hologram on something and nobody else is going to take the time to design their toys around holograms, that's got visual kick. That's got pop Mm -hmm. that nobody else, that's going to sing in the package and and you might not, you know, you'll gloss right over something that doesn't have that. Uh, So Supernaturals had sort of two different scales of figures. They had their sort of like six, seven inch figure. And those figures had a hologram that was basically their face and torso. So they had mm-hmm. elbow, you know, uh, shoulder joints, hip joints. And then they usually had some sort of snap on piece that would go over that face and torso. So you could open it up and see the whole hologram. And on top of that, they were uh, somewhat lenticular so that when you moved it, they actually kind of changed. So there was sort of two frames in there. Uh, they also yeah. had smaller, like little partner toys. Uh, that same thing. The whole body was basically a hologram. It had arms and and weapons and stuff that glowed in the dark, of course. Uh, but yeah, mm-hmm. the draw was those holograms. You basically built a plastic, you know, frame for holograms. And you know, why were holograms so big? Well, the technology was there. It was it was affordable to be able to make them at that, you know, for that purpose, just for kids to have on a toy, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, and there was visionaries were also using holograms, but supernaturals really went for that, you know, what's scary? Monsters, skeletons, ghosts, you yeah. know, creepy man-sized rabbit, you know, pulling a human out of a magic hat instead of the yeah. human pulling the rabbit out. You know, just all of these things that tap into those core fears uh, of the unknown and the supernatural. And as a kid, I didn't really care for the line because I really wanted more posability. And, you know, I wanted to, I wanted yeah. G.I. Joe blew everyone out of the, 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 the yard because they had all the articulation. But now I look at them and I'm like, man, I miss holograms. Yeah, <laughs> I know. know. <laughs> I do too. Let's I was, bring holograms back. <laughs> when I was watching that, that, uh, episode of yours, I was like, holograms still rip. I still think they're so cool looking and still kind of don't quite understand it. Um, well, I, I remember my original point about going to KB and Toys R Us was just the fact that it was hard to find these toys when you're a kid and hard to ever know when you'd come across them again. And now as an adult, I, I sit here and I'm like, oh, let me just go on eBay and look for the ghost popper gun 
that my friend Alex had that I didn't. And I just bought it for like nine ninety nine. Yeah, yeah. And that was hanging <laughs> on my wall. And, and then I got the – and then I was like, well, what what other toys that I never got as a kid can I find on eBay? And then I got the purple eyeball monster Ghostbusters toy that my friend Andy had that yeah. I never got. And I'm like, gosh, I mean, I guess it's just that easy now. Um, uh, uh, why do you think – and maybe I'm wrong because I haven't bought new toys, but aren't – it felt like the 80s were when everybody was like, oh, no, satanic panic, nothing occultic. One of my favorite videos, I don't know if you've ever seen this. Have you ever seen that Christian special about a pastor talking about evil toys? Holy yeah, crap. Yeah. No, it's great. <laughs> Demonic toys or evil in the toy box or something? Yeah, yeah. I, I watch that thing. You I know, love like, it. <laughs> I just watch, I'll watch it every couple months. But he's talking about how everything's occultic and everything's evil. Even the Smurfs are evil. Yeah, Care Bears, I think, get a shout-out in that Care video, Bears, too. <laughs> Care Bears like, are Care evil. Bears. Yeah. But so it seems like these toys would have had a harder time existing then. But yet, I feel like there's less spooky toys now. There's less things that are as creepy as Supernaturals or as disgusting as gar- Garbage Pail Kids and Madballs. It, do you think that's true, or am I misreading the current toy landscape? Um, I think I think that gets into a bigger conversation about where physical toys at and where the physical toy market is and who the physical yeah. toy market is actually trying to appeal to right now versus who who the audience was back in the 80s. You know, back in the 80s, right. it was literally every kid from, you know, four years old to 12 years old. And you're trying to lock in everybody, boys and girls across the spectrum. Uh, and now it's more of a competition. It's more of a focused sort of thing. You, there, there's really, as much as there was licensed tie-ins, you know, were sort of necessary back then, they're even more necessary now because you're really trying to attach it to a brand that already has loyalty and that already has a following. Um, and then, you know, you're, you're trying to compete with that digital element. And how do we build a screen yeah. into this? And how do we build screen a- a- interactivity and uh, and those sorts of things? Um Toys as a whole in 2020, 2019 had some of their best years in a long time. So the the, the toy industry, the physical toy industry is doing fine. Uh, But yeah, as far as like specifically scary monster, they're still there. Um, I just don't know that it's as a dominant a thing as it was uh, in the mid 80s. Yeah. Because of all those toys Uh, and the movies and and the just the the whole era that. it was just constantly sending that message of, you know, yeah. Goonies and Labyrinth and, you know, Secret of Nim and Dark Crystal. And, you know, <laughs> it was just a constant message. Yeah. Are there any other toys from that era that you feel like, uh, uh, like I'd never heard of Bloodsuckers. Are there any others that you feel like were kind of uh, lesser known? I was there- definitely a Boglins guy. Um the, yeah, the other I one that always really creeps me out uh, as a very weird thing, uh, uh, again, Mattel is the kings of gross out here. Uh, in nineteen, They did a line of stories, uh, toys called Mad Scientist, uh, and, oh, yeah. and it sort of played off of that, you know, same thing with the creepy crawlers where you've got goo and liquid and guts and stuff. Uh, but in 1987 specifically, they did a dissect an alien. Uh, and the uh, and the yeah. whole idea was that it's filled with goo and stuff, and you're literally taking the guts out. <laughs> you're, yeah, you're doing an alien autopsy on this thing. <laughs> I remember uh, this is another example where I wouldn't have been able to draw this thing if you'd told me yeah. about it. But now that I see him, yeah, it it's punches so you right in that pleasure center in your brain. Yeah, <laughs> it does. Yeah. 
Yeah. Wow. It's a very weird thing. And uh, of course, prices, uh, secondary market prices now are based on how many of the guts uh, pieces it still has, because you want to have all the internal organs, right? I mean, (laughs) you you don't want to. Well, I recently bought a, uh, uh, the hand puppet version of my pet monster, which is my monster pet, I guess. Right. And, uh, and pressed order on eBay before checking to see if it had its, its handcuffs. Shackles. Yeah. And uh, it didn't have its shackles. And I, I'm still excited to have it, but I'm staring at him over there. Like, uh, yeah, I'm not proud of him. He doesn't have his shackles. Um, yeah, and I remember that as a kid. I can I remember that way those that rubber felt, being able to pull those chains apart. And uh I recently watched that movie that they made of it, which is insane. That is a trip. <laughs> I mean, I remember going to the video store specifically for it yeah. when it came out, but I don't even know if my kid brain could compute like how different it was from what I imagined a movie about that toy would yeah, be. Yeah, yeah. I, I never weird. saw it back in the day. Uh, I didn't even know it existed until we did that video. Uh, yeah. Obviously, I was familiar with My, my Pet Monster. You know, I've, I've had the shackles. I've had the doll, all that stuff. Um, but I never knew there was a live-action uh, movie. I knew there was an animated series. I did not know yeah. about the live-action. Uh, and, yeah, to see, I mean, first of all, bold move to go with, like, the animatronic face uh, yeah. on that thing and full full person in suit you know alf style muppet style i was i was very impressed with that best movie ever probably not (laughs) (laughs) right yeah uh but i think it's the kind of thing that as a kid yeah you would have you would have worn that tape out you know just watched it over and over again yeah yeah you know he's got monster strength he's holding up the truck you know and the the big twist at the end with the other guy getting monster stuff it just it was a yeah a bold way to sell that toy and i i give him all the credit in the world for that I still remember asking for it at the video store and the clerk being like, oh, I mean, yeah, we might have it and not understanding why I was so stoked and then finding it on the shelf and me being like, that's it. That's it. And I'm like, all right, dude, have fun. Um, I mean, I remember calling Toys R Us, as I'm sure you did this, too. uh, What, you know, I was a huge Spawn fan and, Mm -hmm. and that definitely kind of brought back. I realize now, oh, well, that was also kind of bringing back the spooky stuff for me. The toys that were allowed to be, you know, uh, gross and slimy and bloody. But I would call the Toys R Us and ask about their shipments and ask about like what came in the box to know where to, which location to go to. It's such a, I can't imagine me like 12 year old me being like, but can you check the box for Future Spawn? Okay. Yeah, so yeah. you don't have Future Spawn. Got it. That's Cross what I was off doing. that store next on the list. Yeah. Yeah. I had the little, the yellow book and I was going through the different Toys R Us's. That's great. Um, was there just even if it's not a spooky toy, was there a um, like a just a white whale for you of either a toy you never got until you were older that you'd always wanted as a kid or maybe a toy you did finally get as a kid that you were fixating on? At this point, most of the things that I had wanted to get uh, at the time, like you said, you know, you, you mentioned it uh, just a few minutes ago where back then you didn't know that you could ever get these things again. There was no right. eBay. There was no Craigslist. It was basically once your time with that thing expired, either because you lost it, it broke, mom threw it out, some of your friends stole it, you know, <laughs> like going you're yeah. having a sleepover. Uh, it was just gone forever, and you never knew if you would see anything like that ever again. So uh, once the secondary market came around and I was able to go back and get a lot of this stuff, there's, there's not really yeah. many things at this point that I had – 
and wanted to get again, didn't have and wanted to get for a first time. Right. Um, there's not really anything that, you know, at this point, it's more for me, like obscure things that I didn't know exist. Like there was a there's a line of uh, toys that was produced in Japan by the company called Poppy, P-O-P-Y. Uh, it was called World Heroes. And it's uh, it's basically their vintage Kenner Star Wars uh, ah. approach it's the five points of articulation four inch figure but it's the japanese superheroes you know it's ultraman and common rider and you know super sentai characters and stuff i just found out those existed maybe a year ago and oh I, wow you know i, I had the uh, sticker shock i was like oh i'm gonna look these up and oh my god yeah. <laughs> it's been this long i haven't had them it's gonna be an, it's gonna, <laughs> a few more, few more <laughs> yeah. years before i get any of them <laughs> i i just talked to a friend of mine who um who bought, you know, I'm not as, I mean, I know Star Wars and I love Star Wars, but what, how many were there in that original line? Is it D- like, depending on who you ask, it's anywhere okay. between like 90 and 117. It, you know, oh, it's like, gotcha. do you count, do you count Jabba? Do you count Salacious Crumb? Do you, you know, that sort of thing. Right. Well, let me, he just told me that he bought like uh, some original uh, run of, I mean, let's see. Oh, wow. There's a lot in here, I guess. Yeah. He sent yeah. Me pictures. <laughs> oh yeah. There's a lot of figures. <laughs> yeah. He, he, he found someone that had them. Um, she had bought them when they came out and kept them in a box in an, uh, an attic since then they were, yeah. had never been exposed to light. Yep. yep. They look really, really fresh. And I guess it was quite an expensive, you know, purchase. Are they carded or loose? Carded. Oh yeah, no, that's expensive. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's expensive. So they're, they they didn't be expensive loose. Uh, depending on the character, depending on the figures. I yeah. mean, you know, they made millions of those things. You know, uh, yeah. I I, I have a, a collection of over five hundred uh, of the individual Boba Fets. Uh, it's called uh-huh. the, Bo- the Boba Set. Um, gotcha. And you know, people will be like, Ah, Dan's driving up the price on him. He's creating artificial scarcity, and it's like. Do you know how many of these things they made? Right. They made totally. millions. I have less than one percent. I have less than half of one percent of all the figures right. you know, of that character that were made. So yeah. are they worth a lot? Yeah, in very good condition, you know, no paint wear, tight joints with their weapons. Yes, they can be expensive depending on the character, yeah. especially the later ones where they weren't making as many. Um, but if you have, you know, an original 13 back, you know, Han Solo you're going to shell out some cash for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh gosh. I'm looking at these pack. images that he sent me and yeah, yeah, they're, they're, I mean, they look like the day they were, came out of the factory. These yeah, are pretty yeah. fresh. But I, you know, wow. I remember, I remember walking through Kmart and Zares and Woolworths and whatever else and seeing yeah. those like wire bins that they put in the middle when they're clearancing everything out and they're stacked, you know, four feet high, three feet by three feet, just yeah. full of carded Star Wars figures and they're blowing them out at like 50 cents a piece. So, yeah, <laughs> you know, totally. Uh, there's a lot out there. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, uh, before we wrap up our conversation, is there anything else from that gross out era that you thought was interesting out of i mean your your expansive knowledge base on this um i've learned so much from watching your videos uh, even just the creepy crawler stuff i didn't realize that that was that that went all the way back to the thing maker yeah, until yeah. i watched your video um does anything else stand out from your perspective as someone that knows a lot about this one other so there's two last points i would make about that era one yeah. is uh right after star wars you know star wars hits in 77 the whole world goes nuts for space drama and space opera and science fiction and whatever uh alien comes out in 79 oh yeah and kenner tries to put out their 18 inch 
big chap, you know, alien action figure thinking it's just another space monster. It's just another right. weird cantina guy. But alien and Star Wars are not totally <laughs> the same thing, you know? It's true. Uh, but kids are just like, yeah, it is a cool, you know, scary giant monster. But they, they, they can't actually, Kenner doesn't end up producing, you know, four inch figures or anything. They just put out this one 18 inch figure. And I wow. think that's one of those things that starts to create this sort of aura of like, mis- you know, mystery and scariness around a toy you know like ah, it's yeah. been banned you know it's like it's from a scary movie that kids aren't allowed to watch but kids always kids want to go up and the, the the things that really end up being successful and long lasting are the things that don't talk down to kids and try to yeah. bring them up obviously you got to be a responsible parent make your own decisions but the other thing that really powers through this entire gross out generation there's two characters that you know, I, I was born in 1976, so I was 10 years old in 1986, and there's two characters that I was fascinated with and wanted to see more. I was drawn in by them, but repulsed by them. The Friday the 13th franchise and the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, and you're wearing a Night of the Living Dead hat right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, Return of the Living Dead, it's in what, 85, 86, somewhere around there? Yeah, You know, yeah. all of those movies, it's a golden age for horror as well and scary movies, and all my friends and I ever used to talk about, I thought Jason lived in my closet you know i was jason was the boogeyman and all of that stuff there's like one movie a year too if you're counting both franchises right from like 80 to 89 so all of that is just sort of hovering over all of this and all those other ghoulies and you know uh uh, all those other critters you know everything else it's just out there and it's just this whole multimedia uh message of like scary gooey gross out snot vomit monsters death skeletons you know (laughs) it's just everywhere (laughs) everything i love everything i love it's so funny (laughs) yeah uh, the um um everybody always remarks of how how crazy it was that back then these horror figures you know these horror icons were had music videos made of them and tv shows (laughs) and they were in you know commercials and and I'm like, it, not in the 80s, though. We loved, they were so, so, I listened to a horror podcast recently, and I almost had to shut it off, but somebody said, I don't know, I, I was re-watching one of the Halloweens, and I thought, am I supposed to like Michael Myers? I feel like it wants me to root for him. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And I'm like, and I'm like, yeah, what? That's all we did. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I know it's a little weird, but yes, you love the killers yes, from yes. that era. Yep. That's the point. They're the icon i mean they are the ones you want the toy of and and it's uh you know i keep in through our episodes and stuff you know i obviously spend a lot of time analyzing like what was the intent who who was the genius who was like oh you know what robocop would be great as a cartoon for kids yeah Yeah. like how how does that mindset come around who thinks this is good ideas as a kid i was like that's a great idea do it you know and like make it rated r just like the movie you know i want to see ed 209 blow a dude away (laughs) (laughs) Totally. But when you think about it, it, for me, that 80s era, it was really just the sort of next cycle of the universal monsters. You know, if you go back to how Dracula and Frankenstein and the Wolfman and all those sort of movies were received at the time, they were scary. You know, obviously later in their lives, they're, they're, you know, when they get to Abbott and Costello, they're not scary. (laughs) Right. You know? Yeah. Uh, But that's really what it was. And that's who those monsters are now. Uh, Is Freddy's origin a little problematic? Yeah, it is. Yeah. (laughs) Totally. It's a little worse than he found a uh, satanic, you know, uh, talisman. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. But I think that's what that is. And I think it was tapping into that same sort of generational kind of uh, thing where you need those monsters as the kid. You need to, you need something new 
is the boogeyman under the bed and whatever, you know, and for me, it's absolutely, doubt. yep, Freddie, Jason, and all those guys, Mike Myers, yeah. Darth, Darth Vader was in there too. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, I always kind of related to Darth Vader as like somewhat of a horror figure. I remember being very scared absolutely. of Darth Vader. Absolutely, scared to death. Yeah. Um, the last thing I'll bring up, which is just an anecdote, there's really nothing to unpack here, but I, one of the toys that I was obsessed with, uh, was my buddy. And I mean, I guess more of a doll, not a toy, but I was so obsessed with getting that doll and I'm not kidding. It aligned. I need to look at the actual dates. Uh, it's hard for me to like figure out when that toy was really being pushed and when I bought it, but it aligned with me seeing a TV commercial for Child's Play 2, I think it would have been. And I had just bought my buddy doll and then <laughs> saw a TV commercial for Child's Play 2. and uh, Or it might have even been airing late at night on something. But uh, all I know is I heard Chucky say my name, Andrew, but it's Andy in the movie. The kid's name is Andy. And he said something like, I'm coming for you, yeah. Andy. <laughs> And I'm sitting there with my buddy, and I'm like, well, I'm fucked. This yeah. doll is going in my mother's closet where it stayed until I think I was 15 or 16, and it was sold at a yard sale. I couldn't get over the fact that I thought he was going to come alive like Chucky and kill me. I never got to actually have the benefits of having a My Buddy doll and, <laughs> and riding around in a wagon with him like they show in the commercial and – yeah, no, Gosh. Child's Play, uh, Child's Play. So, yeah, my buddy's 85, Child's Play is 88. Uh, Child's Play 1 is 88. Oh, so, and, so oh, wow. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah Child, Child's Play really burst the balloon of uh, any kind of uh, yeah. ongoing My Buddy franchise because it was very clearly, obviously, the inspiration for it. Totally. Uh, and that's pretty much the end of it. <laughs> yeah, it is. So it must have been something that I saw for Child's Play 1 and it just bought a, a My Buddy yeah. doll. Yeah. Wild. Yeah. Well... <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Well, Dan, thank you so much for being here. Uh, I talk about your channel a lot, but if thank anyone you. wants to follow you or check out Toy Galaxy, where can they find everything on YouTube and social media? Yep. Uh, YouTube.com slash Toy Galaxy TV will take you right to us or just search for Toy Galaxy and you'll find one of our videos. Um, I'm on uh, Twitter, Toy Galaxy Dan. Instagram is probably where I'm most active, uh, just at Toy Galaxy on Instagram. Uh, we're on Patreon and we just started recently doing uh, Twitch, twitch.tv slash Toy awesome. uh, galaxy uh in fact you can't see it uh, on the on the air but i'm wearing an obi-wan costume because we just did a uh, may the fourth be with you uh live stream oh, perfect <laughs> <laughs> i didn't even question the jedi garb i didn't ask of course he's dressed as obi-wan kenobi <laughs> yeah exactly all right dan well thank you so much for joining us this has been Absolutely. a great conversation thank you very much Well, what a great conversation with Dan. Check out his channel. Follow them on YouTube and Instagram. There's so much, so much great information on the toys that you grew up with. And animated series. They get into a lot of other things, too. They really do cover uh, the spectrum of pop culture, especially the era that formed people like me. Um, this has been Andrew Bowser. And until next time, you've been listening to The Untold Hour. Untoldians, that is it for this episode of The Untold Hour. Thank you for joining us on this weird and wild ride into the bazaar. If you are interested in sharing your own story of the weird, send us your listener stories to theuntoldhourpod at gmail.com. Come join The Untold Hour Convo over on my Discord server and our Facebook group. And you can follow us on our socials, Instagram at The Untold Hour and at Untold Hour Pod on Twitter. 
Star Bands Audio, a, podca- <clears throat> a podcast network.